Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, number 13, for mid-October 2022. Every Brilliant Thing, Laurel Hill and Ice Cream. episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, Stories from Laurel Hill West, an historic and active cemetery in Bala, Kenwood, Pennsylvania. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West, and volunteer podcaster. Laurel Hill West opened in 1869. It's across the river from its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill East, in Philadelphia. It is more than twice as big as Laurel Hill East and has a totally different feel and a strikingly different population. And like Laurel Hill East, it is open 365 days a year, now from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. There is plenty of parking at the business office just off Belmont Avenue or at the conservatory and bell tower. If you enter on Belmont, follow the road past the second gate with the white line in the middle. Another possibility is just duck in while you're walking the Kinwood Trail. Your best bet for public transportation is to take a bus to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue and then cross the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and come in via the Writer's Ferry entrance across from the Pet Cemetery. I have a new theme song for both podcasts. The tune is called Names at Peace. It's written and performed by local artist James Harrow. The 13th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala is from mid-October 2022. Who doesn't love ice cream? Philadelphia has made huge contributions to the history of this delectable warm weather treat. If you're from the area, you grew up with Bassett's and Briars. Maybe you got some nonpareils or sprinkles on your soft serve. Or you look forward to going into a Center City drugstore so you could sit at that counter and have an ice cream float. All of these have a Quaker City connection. I will talk about them and more today on Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, Every Brilliant Thing, Laurel Hill and Ice Cream. If you were listening to this podcast within a few weeks of my recording it and you're in Philadelphia, I recommend that you see a one-person theatrical experience at the Arden Theater. 
It's on 2nd Street. It runs from November 3rd to December 11th. It's called Every Brilliant Thing. That's where I took the title of this podcast. It is terrific. I saw it here a few years ago, and I will go back and see it again. I won't go into the plot very deeply. It concerns an adult man who started making lists when he was seven years old about all the things that made life worth living. By the time of this play, the list has a million items on it. But back at the beginning, number three was staying up past your bedtime and being allowed to watch TV. Number two was water fights. And number one was ice cream. The connection between Philadelphia and ice cream is a strong one. Along the province of the wealthy, ice cream made its way into the Quaker City as early as 1795. I found ads in William Duane's Aurora newspaper for ice creams of all kinds, which may be had at Mr. Collette's, number 127 North Front Street, every day between 2 in the afternoon and 10 in the evening. He also makes iced cheeses, something I have never tried. But ice cream dates back to biblical times. King Solomon was fond of ice drinks during harvesting season. During the Roman Empire, Nero Claudius Caesar, AD 54 to 86, sent runners into the mountains for snow, which was then flavored with fruits and juices. And we know that Alexander the Great enjoyed snow and ice flavored with honey and nectar. More than a thousand years later, in the early 14th century, Marco Polo returned to Italy from the Far East with a recipe that closely resembled what we now call sherbet. Historians estimate that this recipe evolved into ice cream sometime in the 16th century. France was introduced to frozen desserts in 1553 by the Italian Catherine de' Medici when she became the wife of Henry II of France. In the second quarter of the 17th century, cream ice, as it was called, appeared regularly at the table of Charles I. It wasn't until 1660 that ice cream was made available to the general public when the Sicilian Procopio introduced a recipe blending milk, cream, butter, and eggs at Café Procope, the first café in Paris. The first official account of ice cream in the New World came from a letter written in 1744 by a guest of Maryland Governor William Bladen. Records kept by a Chatham Street, New York merchant show that President George Washington spent about $200 for ice cream during the summer of 1790. President Thomas Jefferson had a favorite 18-step recipe for an ice cream delicacy that resembles a modern-day baked Alaska. In 1813, Dolly Madison served a magnificent strawberry ice cream creation at President Madison's second inaugural banquet at the White House. Until 1800, when insulated ice houses were invented, ice cream remained a rare and exotic dessert enjoyed mostly by the elite. Around the same time, increased production of sugar drove its price down and made it more available for general use. Manufacturing ice cream for the public was pioneered in 1851 by a Baltimore milk dealer named Jacob Fussell, who was considered father of the ice cream industry. This was at a time when the average American ate one teaspoon of ice cream per year. 
steam power, mechanical refrigeration, the homogenizer, electric power and motors, packing machines, and new freezing processes and equipment all pushed the ice cream industry forward. Now, by coincidence, researcher Selena Bemack of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania published a blog earlier this year about Philadelphia ice cream, which was turned into an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer on 7 August 2022. Some of what I just told you and some of what follows comes from her research. I did get her permission to use it. Most ice cream made in the rest of the United States is what is called French style. It uses a custard base that contains egg yolks. This makes ice cream thick and rich. Philadelphia style ice cream is much lighter. It's made from only three ingredients, cream, sugar, and flavoring. In 1818, Eleanor Parkinson and her husband George opened stores next door to each other on Chestnut Street between 7th and 8th. George ran a tavern, the Pennsylvania Arms, but taverns were a dime a dozen in Philadelphia. It was the confectionery run by Eleanor, Parkinson's Ice Cream Saloon, that made the pair known. Soon, George left the tavern business to join his wife in their rapidly growing ice cream business. Eleanor and George made confections their life for several decades. In addition to making many flavors of ice cream, Eleanor published a book in 1844 called The Complete Confectioner, in which she described how to form nonpareils, decorative tiny balls made from sugar and starch. By the mid-20th century, nonpareils had mostly given away to sprinkles, or for the chocolate ones in Philadelphia anyway, jimmies. Oddly, McElroy's Philadelphia director for 1841 lists R.B. and J.W. Parkinson as confectioners at 180 Chestnut Street. DeSilver's Philadelphia directory for 1835 lists confectioner George Parkinson on Chestnut Street, opposite Masonic Hall. Eleanor and George are interred at Laurel Hill East in Section H. The science needed to produce ice cream has been known for centuries. Essentially, part of a liquid mixture is frozen. Then it's scraped back into the liquid until a soft, solid product is formed. But the technology was rather primitive, and ice cream manufacture was a labor-intensive industry. Until the mid-19th century, pot freezers, or sorbetiers, dominated in the manufacture of ice cream. It required someone or something to rotate the handle of a receptacle, which contained the ice cream mixture in a bath that housed a freezing agent. The mixture would freeze on the walls of the container and would then need to be scraped and mixed back into the dairy solution. The revolution in ice cream production, which started with ice houses and cheaper sugar, was finalized in September 1843, when Philadelphian Nancy Johnson, 1794 to 1890, received a patent for an artificial freezer. This new invention had only three main parts, a tall tub, a slender cylinder with a close-fitting lid, and a dasher, or inside paddle, with a removable crank. By placing the dasher in the cylinder and attaching it to the crank through a hole in the cylinder lid, 
a person could turn the crank with less work than rotating the lid of a pot freezer. Now, instead of having to stop the turning to scrape the frozen mixture from the side of the inner receptacle, the crank turned the dasher, which constantly scraped and mixed the frozen mixture toward the center of the liquid mixture as it was being stirred. This simultaneous freezing, scraping, and stirring allowed for a smoother, fluffier texture than was possible with a pot freezer. Turning the crank of Johnson's invention was also less exhausting than rotating the pot freezer. Although Nancy Johnson patented her labor-saving device while in Philadelphia, she is not buried here. She's buried in Washington, D.C. But ice cream making was now available to anyone with a little money and the elbow grease to turn the crank. There are two families associated with Philadelphia ice cream whose names have lived into the 21st century, the Bassetts and the Briars. In 1861, the year that Abraham Lincoln assumed the presidency and the Civil War started, 33-year-old New Jersey Quaker farmer and school teacher Louis Dubois Bassett began making ice cream in his backyard with a churn that he powered with a mule. Nearly a quarter of a century later, in 1885, he started selling his product from a shop at Fifth and Market Streets in Philadelphia. In 1892, Lewis relocated to the then-new Reading Terminal Market, where his shop remains today. A state-of-the-art refrigerated storage area opened in the basement of the market in July 1893. 52 separate rooms, ranging in volume from 5,000 to 17,000 cubic feet, half a million cubic feet of storage space and the temperature of each room could be controlled individually to meet temperature requirements for different goods 15 to 25 degrees fahrenheit for meat and poultry 34 degrees fahrenheit for fruit and vegetables the storage area actually had a larger staff than the market itself and it was more expensive to maintain now, when Louis Dubois Bassett died in 1906, he was interred at Mount Moriah Cemetery. And that's where he remains. But he had left his company in good hands. His son, Louis Lafayette Bassett, age 33, was now in charge. Although there were about 50 ice cream makers in the city as competition, Bassett's ice cream stayed active and profitable. But Louis Lafayette died unexpectedly of a heart attack at age 46, and he was interred in the Marlboro section of Laurel Hill West. His son, Louis Lafayette Jr., was still a teenager, so his wife, Louise Austin Bassett, took over until Jr. turned 21 in 1925. Louis Jr. had learned the trade well. Bassett's ice cream, no apostrophe, continued to thrive and knew how to promote its wares. For instance, in 1959, it made news by meeting a request from a visiting Russian dignitary and shipping 50 quarts of borscht ice cream to Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. When Louis Jr. died in 1986 at age 80, he too was interred at Laurel Hill West, but in the Radnor section, which is a little visited area. It's actually across Riders Ferry Road. Lewis Jr.'s daughter, Anne, was next in charge. Anne was born in Rose Valley. She graduated from the Solberry School in New Hope 
1951. She attended Moore College of Art and Design in Philadelphia, but did not graduate. She had started with a counter job in her teens, and she became part of management in 1973 when she was 40 years old. That's the same year she divorced her husband, Navy Captain Robert C. Strange. Anne was by far the most daring and the most successful head of Bassett's. She helped the company grow into a respected national firm. In 1980, the company sold 4 million pints in 27 flavors. And by 1981, Bassett's was selling its products in 18 states. Ann Bassett remained the public face of the company until 1994, when she handed the reins over to her son, a fifth-generation Bassett. She still kept a hand in the business during her retirement, but she became a skilled bridge and scrabble player, an accomplished artist, and an excellent guitar player. Ann died in 2019. She's also buried at Laurel Hill West in the Radnor section. Bassett's Ice Cream is the only original merchant still at Reading Terminal, and it still operates as a family business. The sixth generation is now in charge, and the marble countertop you see at their pilot store is the original from more than 125 years ago. Just a few years after Louis Dubois Bassett's mule was cranking out ice cream in his New Jersey backyard, William Breyer started doing the same in his Frankfurt kitchen, but without a mule. The Civil War was over. The 38-year-old veteran Breyer, who'd been born in Wittenberg, Germany, needed a way to make a living. He decided on ice cream. Using only cream, cane sugar, and nuts, his product sold almost as quickly as he could make it. And by 1882, he and his wife Louisa had made enough money to purchase an ice cream shop at Frankfurt and Somerset in Port Richmond. Within a few years, there were four more shops. Soon, the Briars purchased a horse-drawn wagon to carry their product around town. And they added the dinner bell to the cart so people could hear when the Briars ice cream wagon was in the neighborhood. William's sons, Henry William, born in 1878, and Frederick William, born in 1867, grew up in the ice cream business. William Sr. died suddenly of smallpox in 1882. He was originally buried at Franklin Cemetery in Kensington, which no longer exists. Louisa kept the business going until the boys were old enough to take over. By 1896, as refrigeration techniques improved, Breyer's ice cream could be shipped up and down the East Coast and they opened their first wholesale distribution to other merchants. It was around this time that they developed their distinctive logo with a serrated leaf that everyone assumes is a mint leaf. It is not. It is a briar bush leaf. By 1918, Louisa and Frederick had died, but Henry kept the business growing and thriving. By this time, Briar's ice cream was selling more than a million gallons a year, covering the East Coast from New York City to Washington, D.C. They opened a new plant on Cumberland, and it grew until it took up an entire city block. By 1924, Briar's was the best-selling ice cream in the United States, and they ran the largest ice cream manufacturing plant in the world. 
When they opened new plants in New York in 1925 and New Jersey in 1927, they were at full production capacity the day that they opened. It was in 1926 that Breyers realized they could no longer handle distribution of their product across the country, and they were purchased by National Dairy Products Corporation for $19 million, but with the family still involved in the business. In 1929, Henry Jr. and his wife Edith acquired Lindenhurst, the former Wanamaker estate in Jenkintown, at a reported cost of a million dollars. They later donated the estate to the Philadelphia Council Boy Scouts of America. That property is now the home of Salus University, with its mascot Sal the Salamander. On the West Coast, there was a very popular ice cream founded by William Dreyer and Joseph Eady, in 1928. It was called Dryers with an apostrophe. Briars has never had an apostrophe in its name. As distribution improved and the two ice creams started competing in the same markets, there was obviously confusion. Dryers caved in first, so the ice cream that you buy today on the East Coast named Edie's is still Dryers on the West Coast. The 1930s were a tough time for Briars and other confectioners. People's ice cream consumption fell as they tightened their purse strings during the Great Depression. In 1936, while he was vacationing in Florida, Henry William Briar died suddenly of a heart attack in his Miami Beach penthouse. In the last years of his life, he had contributed $10 million to varying charitable organizations, and he left an equal amount in his will to be distributed. Just a few months later, there was a short article in the Inquirer about the arrival of two new giraffes at the Philadelphia Zoo, courtesy of Henry W. Breyer, Jr., His son, Henry III, age five, had been deeply disappointed when the family found no giraffes at the country's oldest zoo. When Henry Jr. asked why, zoo officials said they couldn't afford any, so Henry immediately bought them two. In 1939, Edith and her daughter-in-law were victims of highway robbery, literally, as they were returning from a night at the opera at the Academy of Music, their car was stopped for a red light at the corner of Schoolhouse Lane and Henry Avenue when it was suddenly entered by four men who stripped them of their furs and jewelry, which had an estimated value of $88,000. Edith outlived Henry by 31 years. She died at 90 in 1967. She had once been named one of the nation's 10 best-dressed women. Business picked up for Briars in the 1940s and 50s, and the company treated its employees well. Workers were given a daily ice cream break with a different flavor every day. Mondays were special because they also got toppings or nuts with their ice cream. Briars went through several more changes of hands. Initially with Kraftco, where Henry Jr., grandson of the founder, served as director until his death at 67 in 1972. In 1993, a merger brought about the Good Humor Briars Company. Briars is now part of Unilever, a British-Dutch conglomerate. They maintain their promise to have only the best ingredients with nothing artificial. When Briars decided to make mint ice cream, 
Customers were surprised and even confused when they opened a container and found something that looked like vanilla. But the company refused to put in artificial dyes just to make it look like the mint green that everybody else was selling. As late as 2015, Briars was using only sustainable vanilla and refused to use cream products by cows treated with artificial growth hormones. The Good Humor Briars ice cream novelty, Choco Taco, was discontinued just a few months before I recorded this. It had been invented in Philadelphia in 1983 and was distributed by Good Humor Briars. The Briar family is interred in a simple, tasteful mausoleum at Laurel Hill West in the memorial section, lot 51. And two things to remember. Briars, like Bassett's, there's no apostrophe. And the leaf on the carton is not a mint leaf. It's a briar leaf. Another ice cream magnet buried at Laurel Hill West is Joseph Potts Sr. He started his career with Supply Wills Jones Milk Company before he founded his own firm in 1935. The Supply brothers are also interred at Laurel Hill West in the Belmont section. Joseph Potts was killed in a car crash on East River Drive, now Kelly Drive, in December 1955. He was 71 years old. The accident took place at the Columbia Bridge, that's just a mile or so south of Laurel Hill East, about where the statue of Olympic rower John Kelly now sits. Potts was strictly a local brand, and it's come under the wing of Bassett's over the last few years. Potts is interred with family members in the Franconia section, lot 301D at Laurel Hill West. Now, I have a question for you. When's the last time you had an ice cream float? Maybe you know it better as an ice cream soda. You know, a scoop of ice cream in flavored soda water. And maybe the most popular version is a root beer float. Well, the guy who popularized root beer is indeed buried at Balakinwood, but he's not at Laurel Hill West. Charles Elmer Hires, founder of Hires Root Beer, is interred at Westminster Cemetery next door to Laurel Hill West. But the man who invented the ice cream float is buried at Laurel Hill West. His name is Robert McKay Green, a Civil War veteran born in 1842. In 1874, at the Franklin Institute Semi-Centennial, Green was doing a booming business in selling his iced-flavored soda waters, so much so that he ran out of ice. Proving that necessity is indeed the mother of invention, Green bought some ice cream from one of his vendor neighbors, and he used a scoop in each glass to keep his sodas cold, and the ice cream float was born. Ice cream sodas became so popular that a price war broke out among vendors at Woodside Park. Mrs. Lizzie A. Hip sold the delectable at her stand for only five cents, which undercut every other merchant who was selling the same thing for 10 cents. When the folks who were renting her space asked her to stop undercutting the competition, she refused, and the company responded by turning off her electric lights. It didn't seem to slow down her business very much. In 1910, Robert McKay Green had changed his story, and he said that he put the ice cream and the soda together on purpose. No matter, ice cream historians now give him credit for inventing this tasty concoction. There are dozens of versions around the world, including the beer float 
made from Guinness Stout, chocolate ice cream, and a shot of cold espresso. If you have a favorite variety, let me know. It was also in 1910 that Miss Florence Mabel Diedrich made the declaration that, quote, ice cream parlors are the places where scores of girls have taken their first step downward. This author of the very popular book, Fighting the Traffic in Young Girls or War on the White Slave Trade, said that ice cream led to more fallen women than alcohol or drugs, especially when the parlors were owned by foreigners. Since young women were not allowed unaccompanied into taverns, the soda fountain was initially considered a safe space for women to gather and to sometimes interact with young men without benefit of an escort. One thing should be made very clear to the girl who comes up to the city, and that is that the ordinary ice cream parlor is very likely to be a spider's web for her entanglement. The whole story of the sordid world of ice cream parlors is beyond the scope of this podcast, but it does make for a fascinating read. I'll give you a reference in the bibliography. Oh, and by the way, bananas were also a sure road to a woman's downfall. Now, as ice cream became more popular due to the availability of ice, sugar, and hand crank freezers, cases of a mysterious disease called ice cream poisoning mushroomed. Sometimes after happy events like church socials and picnics and weddings, people were attacked with severe abdominal pain and watery diarrhea, which was occasionally lethal in young children who died, quote, comatose and in convulsions, end quote. This was years before German pathologist Robert Koch proposed his postulates for diagnosing bacterial disease. So many things were blamed, especially food adulteration, as the symptoms resembled such well-known poisons as arsenic, strychnine, and formaldehyde. Italian scientist Francesco Selmi came up with a proposal in the 1880s. The culprit was, in his word, a cadaveric alkaloid he named tomain, a word derived from the Greek word toma, P-T-O-M-A. That means corpse. Tomains were originally blamed for such disparate conditions as cholera, typhoid, and tetanus. But while cholera and typhoid caused diarrhea that lasted for many days, leading to death from dehydration and metabolic derangements, ice cream poisoning was almost always self-limiting. It was hours rather than days. Later, any sort of food-associated illness was being labeled tomain poisoning, no matter what its cause. Early street vendors of ice cream unwittingly contributed to the problem. In the days before ice cream cones, which did not come into common use until the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, hawkers of ice cream served a portion of their wares in a thick glass dish. The thick glass was used to fool the customer into believing they were getting more ice cream than they actually did. These so-called penny licks were then wiped out with a rag and reused. And yes, they used the same rag all day. In addition, unused ice cream from one day was melted and then refrozen for the next day's sale. By the 1880s, cases of ice cream poisoning had become epidemic. Some physicians blamed the tomains. Others blamed a condition called vanillism. 
a condition caused by poor quality vanilla beans, or even a toxic parasite which infected vanilla beans. One medical practitioner, Dr. W.J. Kales in Franklinville, New York, came up with a simpler solution. Every law of digestion is violated at the so-called ice cream festival. Every fellow takes particular delight in gorging himself and his best girl, not only with ice cream, cake, candy, etc., but with every variety of indigestible substance. This process goes on for two or more hours when outraged nature comes to the rescue and the indigestible matter is expelled with all the symptoms of acute gastrointestinal irritation. In 1887, a Chambersburg, Pennsylvania physician, Dr. George S. Hull, proposed that the fault was to be found in the ice cream freezer itself, namely that they operated as inadvertent electrical batteries and produced toxic zinc compounds mixed in with the final product. Slowly, the bacterial theory started to take hold, and people shifted their thinking to ways of treating bacterial illness or preventing bacterial spread. Researchers had discovered that food poisoning was caused by pathogens like Staphylococcus aureus, Bacillus cereus, Escherichia coli, and Salmonella. It was discovered that these bacteria could be killed by exposing them to high heat, but customers did not like the taste of dairy products which had been boiled. Pasteurization was the answer. That's a process in which foods such as milk and fruit juices are treated with mild heat, usually less than 100 degrees centigrade, 212 degrees Fahrenheit. It eliminates pathogens and extends shelf life. Bacteriologists eventually made the theory of ptomaine poisoning go away, and the British Medical Journal, now known as BMJ, declared in 1942 that, quote, there is no such thing as ptomaine poisoning, end quote. That was 80 years ago, and occasionally you'll still hear somebody mention something about ptomaine poisoning. Enter our final character for today, Mary Engel Pennington, born in Nashville in 1872, but raised in Philadelphia. I talked about her at length in podcast number 11. She invented what? That was back in March of 2020, just before COVID hit. As a review, Mary talked her way into attending science classes at the University of Pennsylvania when she was 15 years old. She completed the requirements for a BS degree in bacteriological chemistry with minors in botany and zoology in 1890. She was 18 years old. But the University of Pennsylvania did not grant degrees to women at this time, so she was given a certificate of proficiency instead of a degree. Pennington refused to concede to the standards of her day, and she pushed onward with even more advanced classes. Penn gave in. They allowed her to take advanced courses as long as she promised not to apply for a Ph.D. until she was 21 years old. She waited until she was 22 but she did get her Ph.D. in chemistry in 1894. She developed such a good reputation as a bacteriologist and a chemist that she was given a municipal job as head of the city's bacteriological department. Although she had no laws to back her up, she visited the Philadelphia street peddlers of Hokey Pokey 
ice cream sold from a push cart and wrapped in paper, accompanied by the street cry, here's the stuff to make you jump, hokey pokey, penny a lump. This is, of course, the source of the familiar dance, hokey pokey. Also, many of the vendors were Italian immigrants, and they would cry out, oce poci, which is understood as see how cheap it is. Mary showed these men microscopic slides bearing organisms from their unsanitary carts. The vendors were horrified by the little squiggly critters that they saw under the microscope, and they quickly agreed to boil their pots and ladles. Pennington went on to be known as the Ice Lady and determined exactly how much cooling or freezing was required to keep food safe. And then she invented improvements in railroad refrigerator cars which allowed products which had been local to become regional and national. Not just ice cream, but meats, produce, beer. Dr. Mary Engel Pennington, Ph.D. without a bachelor's degree, lived until 1952, and she's buried under a large slab with family members in Laurel Hill East, Section G, Lot 266. With proper pasteurization of products and sanitation of equipment, the rates of ice cream poisoning plummeted. A 2006 article in the professional journal Food Protection Trends counted only 38 outbreaks of foodborne illness in the United States spread by ice cream for the 13 years between 1990 and 2003, and a total of 1,632 people were made ill. There were no deaths reported. So, the next time you enjoy a dish of ice cream, or a cone, with or without sprinkles, or a root beer float, remember all the Philadelphia connections that made ice cream number one on the list of every brilliant thing. As I am sure you noticed, we are now Laurel Hill East in Philadelphia and Laurel Hill West in Balakinwood. If you become a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill, you can take advantage of many member benefits. Discounts on tours at both cemeteries and in the gift shop. Members-only tours. Two annual members-only podcasts. It's a terrific gift for you or for friends and relatives who share your love for Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West. And Christmas is just around the corner. Consider a Christmas gift of a membership in the Friends of Laurel Hill for one of your loved ones. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. You are obviously a listener, and I hope you like what you're listening to. Do me a favor and drop a review or at least click the stars if you are downloading from Apple. They have a method for you to evaluate the podcast. Drop in a message and uh, help me build the audience for this. The November edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, will be about connections with one of my favorite presidents, James Abram Garfield, who was assassinated in 1881. Samuel J. Randall was a Philadelphia politician, speaker of the House, and a serious contender for the presidential nomination in 1880 and 1884. Dr. David Hayes Agnew was a Penn surgeon summoned to Washington, D.C. to care for the president after he was shot. 
and eminent neurologist Dr. Charles Karsner Mills performed the post-mortem examination on Garfield's assailant, Charles Guteau, and more. I'll try to get in a few words about the Garfield Memorial statue on Kelly Drive. Consider it an autumn mini-assassination vacation. Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, episode number 14 in mid-November, will feature the brilliant and generous Philadelphia physician Bushrod Washington James. His legacy is spread across the land in schools and libraries. Expect that podcast around November 11th. And you want self-guided tours? They're available for both cemeteries. For Laurel Hill East, download the app. For Laurel Hill West, you can find it with your podcast. It's a walkthrough from the Kinwood Trail entrance to the Pencoid exit. And I hope that by the time you're listening to this, the audio for the route back is available. There's a self-guided tour coming back from Pencoid to Barmouth. Just waiting for a couple of last-minute approvals from family members of people that I talk about. Look for both of those wherever you listen to podcasts, the self-guided tour in Laurel Hill West. Upcoming tours and activities, go to our website, laurelhillphl.com slash events. For the rest of October, we've got some good stuff. You've still got time. You've still got time for a hotspots tour on Thursday the 20th at Laurel Hill East and a Sacred Spaces and Storied Places tour at Laurel Hill West on Saturday the 22nd. Both of those are at 10 a.m. One that I highly recommend, The Worlds of Thomas Jefferson at Laurel Hill. That is Sunday the 23rd at 1 p.m. at Laurel Hill East. Bill Barker is Thomas Jefferson at Monticello, and he knows what he is talking about. He comes back to Philadelphia and gives this tour once a year. Very much worth your time. There's another Hotspots tour at Laurel Hill East on the 28th at 10 a.m. And then one I am really looking forward to, the Nevermore Tour, Edgar Allan Poe's Laurel Hill Connections, Saturday, October 29th, 1 p.m., at Laurel Hill East. Why would you want to be any place else other than at the cemetery for that tour? That one's going to sell out. I can guarantee that. On the 29th also at West, we have True Tales from the Tombs. That is timed ticketing for you to walk around and hear stories presented by actors as people buried at the cemeteries. It's a lot of fun. And then go around with our arborist, Aaron Greenberg, on Sunday the 30th. There's a fall foliage tour from 1 p.m. at Laurel Hill West. November, there's an accessible hotspots and storied plots tour on the 5th at 10 a.m. I am not giving that one. I think Laura Lewis is giving that one. Uh, the Marine Corps Anniversary Service, as happens every year on November 10th, that's at 11 a.m. at Laurel Hill East. It is free. It is in South, so you will have to walk about a half a mile to get to where the ceremony will take place. But you will see some Marines in dress uniform celebrating the first general officer in the Marines, Jacob Zylan, who's buried at Laurel Hill East. When else are the hotspots tours? Let's see, there's one on Saturday the 12th at 1 p.m. And another one on Sunday the 25th at 10 a.m. The 
virtual hot spots is on Wednesday the 16th at 6.30 p.m. And then there's a Sacred Spaces and Storied Places on Saturday the 19th at Laurel Hill West at 1 p.m. Surviving Widowhood Walking Tour on Sunday the 13th. This is November again. Uh, Sunday the 13th at 10 a.m. at East. Giving Back Philanthropists of Laurel Hill. Sunday the 20th, 1 p.m. at Laurel Hill East. So lots of good stuff coming up. There's a virtual death cafe also. There's the Boneyard Bookworms. Check out the website for more information. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide and podcaster for both cemeteries. If you have any comments about All Bones Considered or Biographical Bites from Bala, don't hesitate to get in touch with me, joe at joelex.net. Maybe I will see you on a tour. Stay safe, stay well. The Bibliography is coming up next. First and foremost for the bibliography, I want to thank researcher Selena Bemack from the Historical Society of Pennsylvania for allowing me to use information from the blog that she published earlier this year about Philadelphia ice cream, which in turn was used as an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer on 7 August 2022. I had planned this podcast many, many months ago, so it was a real bonus for me to have this information just sort of fall into my lap uh, even before I started to put together the podcast. Now, as far as articles, the one I know you want to hear about is how Ice cream parlors were the downfall of young women coming from the country to the city. This is a wonderful read. It's called Whispers in an Ice Cream Parlor, Culinary Tourism, Contemporary Legends, and the Urban Interzone. This is by Bill Ellis. It's in the Journal of American Folklore, Winter 2009, Volume 122, Number 483, Food and Identity in the Americas. That's pages 53 through 74. Another useful article, When Ice Cream Was Poisonous, by Edward Geist. It's from the Bulletin of the History of Medicine, volume 86, number 3, fall 2012, pages 333 to 360. And Women and Restaurants in the 19th Century United States. The author is Paul Friedman. That's from the Journal of Social History, fall 2014, Volume 48, Number 1, pages 1 through 19. The information on the Bassets came mostly from newspaper articles and obituaries, and also from their website, where they give a nice history of the company. For the Briars, there were a ton of articles out of the Inquirer and other local newspapers. That's where I got the story about... Uh, Henry Jr. buying the giraffes so Henry III would be able to see giraffes when he went to the zoo. That's where I got the story of the hijacking of Mrs. Breyer as they were coming home from the Academy of Music and several other articles. Information on Robert Green, Eleanor Parkinson, and Joseph Potts came mostly from newspaper articles and also from some online resources. 
Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you around the cemetery. Stay safe, stay well.